Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch the season premiere of Grey's Anatomy tonight at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. The Jackson State prison system is a warehouse of stories. The sprawling system has incarcerated some of Michigan's worst murderers, rapists, and thieves over the years. Prison is no guarantee a criminal will change their ways, though. One day in 1985, an inmate on a work crew in eastern Jackson County walked off, robbed and killed a husband and wife, then returned to prison like no big deal. Welcome to Michigan Crime Stories. Michigan Crime Stories is a podcast that explores murder, mysteries, and mayhem in the Mitten State. Criminal behavior has always enthralled us. It's when societies determine what is and isn't allowed. We assume heinous crimes are committed by monsters, individuals we dehumanize in an effort to make sense of their deeds. Their victims sometimes seem distant, just faded names in a passing headline. But the terrifying truth is that crimes are committed by ordinary people just like you and me. And many of those crimes happen right in our own backyard. My name is Darcy Moran. And this is John Counts. We're reporters for MLive.com and your hosts for Michigan Crime Stories. This episode is called The Walk Away, reported by MLive reporter Leanne Smith. She had taken a day off from her 30-year job with Michigan Bell Telephone Company. Janet Rose, a well-liked church organist, was enjoying the quiet of her neatly groomed home on a dead-end country road surrounded by woods and meadows. Her husband, Edward, was just outside farming the hay fields around their rural Leone Township home in eastern Jackson County. Neither of them, or any of their neighbors, felt unsafe that their properties bordered Southern Michigan Prison's root farm. They thought nothing of occasionally seeing some of the 106 inmates who cared for a 1,000 head of cattle that helped feed prisoners. That peaceful existence changed later that day, June 4, 1985, when the Moroz's 20-year-old daughter found her father in a blood-spattered bedroom with eight stab wounds in his chest and her mother in a bathtub with a rusty knife stuck in her chest. The murders of Edward and Janet Moroz not only ended the almost casual way people lived in proximity with prisoners, it brought a demise to the Southern Michigan prison farm system and changed the way prisoners were housed. Southern Michigan prison had operated prison farms since the 1930s. In 1985, there were five farms that produced everything from corn, hay, and vegetables to cattle, pigs, and chickens. There were 531 inmates on these farms, even though their capacity was only 355. Originally designed for prisoners with the best behavior, overcrowding throughout the prison system now was putting violent offenders, including murderers and rapists, on these less secure farms. 
It became common for prisoners to walk away from these farms in an attempt to escape. In the first six months of 1985, 60 had left SMP's minimum security facilities, including the farms. It was so routine, these events were referred to as walkaways. No walkaway had ever committed a crime and then returned to prison before, but police were not ruling out that was what happened with the Moreau's murders. Brad Flory had been the Jackson Citizen Patriots prison and courts reporter for just three months when he began covering this story. As I recall, the prison spokesman said that they couldn't rule it out that prison inmates were involved, that inmates had committed the murders, walked away from the prison, committed the murders, then returned before anybody noticed that they were gone. And there were a lot of people that were just assumed that was it, including the police, uh, the county sheriff's department. And to me, that being a young reporter, I thought that sounded unbelievable. How could people walk away from prison and kill somebody and then come back and nobody even noticed they were gone? I mean, at first, I didn't put much stock in it, but I was proven wrong on that. Police told those neighboring the prison farms to lock their doors. They began keeping loaded weapons in their homes. Police declared war on the walkaways. Three weeks after the Moreau's murders, Carrie J. Harden Bay, a 35-year-old inmate from Detroit, serving a 15- to 30-year sentence for two armed robberies, and who had a lengthy list of misconduct citations on his prison record, was arrested. On the day of the murders, Hardin Bay was mending fences near the Moreau's property. The motive, police said, was robbery. Cash and jewelry were missing. His fingerprints were found on a bottle of run taken from the Moreau's refrigerator. Hardin Bay was charged with five counts of open murder, felony murder, and robbery. After writing to him in prison, Flory secured an interview with Hardin Bay. The prisoner spoke, Flory said, in a flair that fills ballot boxes for politicians and plates for preachers. He he couldn't be guilty of this crime because the murderer used knives, used a knife. And if he would have wanted to kill somebody, he could do it with one finger. And I'm thinking, this is not really what I think is proving you're not a psycho killer. (laughs) That was my thought at the time. Hardin Bay declared his innocence, saying the evidence against him had been planted as he'd never been in the Moreau's house. Then Jackson County Prosecutor Joe Phillip took issue with Hardin Bay's comment about the fingerprints. Phillip said he needed Flory's notes to turn this statement against the prisoner. He could use it, he said, to prove that the fingerprints would not have been there if not for the crime. In the journalism profession, you're not supposed to get involved in the prosecution or defense of somebody charged with a crime. So I was a little bit leery of the whole thing. And um, I got, I mailed all my notes and stuff to a friend and then they got subpoenaed. And then my friend didn't, um, Exactly. Uh, He says he mailed them back. I never got them. Flory offered his resignation over the situation, giving letters to editor Bob Ludwig and publisher Buck Weaver. 
Buck Weaver, I always liked that man. I love this, that man for this. He came up to my desk and took that letter and ripped it in half, threw it in the trash, never said a word. A second inmate, Herbert A. Stuttered, 25 of Milan, serving a 12 to 30 year rape sentence, was later charged with robbery and murder in connection with the Moreau's murders. He confessed he participated in the crime because he was in mortal fear of Hardin Bay. From what little bit I saw, both in his trial and, and or in his um, court appearances, and also that my interview, I could understand how even somebody who was a, a convict in prison would be afraid of the guy. That was the impression he left on me, that he was a frightening individual. Stuttered was found guilty on all counts, but neither his testimony nor his confession were allowed in Hardin Bay's trial when it began in February 1986 in Grand Rapids. Hardin Bay was found guilty of second-degree murder and armed robbery. Jurors said they were confused and thought felony murder was not as severe as second-degree murder. He was sentenced in May 1986 as a habitual offender to 90 to 150 years and remains in the Thumb Correctional Facility. Due to the prison overcrowding at the time of the Moreau's murders, roughly 79 of the 106 inmates at Root Farm were serving time for assaultive crimes. Nearly half had been convicted of sex-related crimes. And, and to be fair to the people that worked in the Department of Corrections, they were put in a horrible situation to manage a prison that's, that was, at that time, had, I believe, more than 5,000 inmates. It's bigger than many it's bigger than many small cities around here. And, uh, you know, it, it was impossible to manage that environment real tightly. These murders directly led to the establishment in the prison of a special team to catch walkaways in Jackson and Washtenaw counties. They led to the prison's farm barracks being closed by the end of 1986 and to other reforms to keep the prison from becoming so large and overcrowded it couldn't handle the population. I think this really, this case really started sort of a whole significant reevaluation and toughening of how we're going to um, handle prisoners and make sure they're not in, in minimum security when they're they don't deserve to be, which, by the way, I don't know about Stuttered. I don't remember him distinctly, but Hardin Bay never should have been in minimum security. Never. Um, and, and everybody knew it. Hey, this is John Counts with Michigan Crime Stories. I'm sitting down here with Leanne Smith, uh, the lead reporter out in our Jackson Hub, and she's going to tell us a little bit about um, how she came across this story today. Want to take it away, Darcy? Sure, John. So, hey, Leanne, thank you so much for uh, sitting down with us on this. Um, I was just going to start out. So, uh, obviously, everyone here, John, yourself, and, and, and me, we've all reported on crime stories before. There is always this element where you sometimes have to interview a suspected killer. But I found it so interesting, uh, Brad Flory's story here. I was curious if he told you, you know, being a young reporter, his feeling going into that interview. Brad actually had written a letter to Carrie Harden Bay after he had been charged in the murders. Um, he wore a lot of religious medals. He belonged to um, a Muslim-like religion. And Brad kind of tried to get his foot in the door by commenting on, he noticed during his um, arraignment in court that he wore these medals. 
And Hardin Bay wrote back to him and said, would you come out to the prison? I'd like to talk with you. And Brad was like, absolutely. That was sort of what he wanted to do by opening the door and writing that letter to him. Another question I had, and then I'll I'll let John take it from here, was... um, you know, this whole issue, it seems like a high embarrassment to the corrections department to have this occur. Was there ever a really true response from them on that, or were there any lawsuits? The family, the daughter of Janet and Edward Moreau's did file a lawsuit against uh, Department of Corrections, and it went on for a number of years and, um, you know, eventually went nowhere. They never were awarded any damages or anything like that. Um, however, as, you know, we talked about, it, it created a lot of reform uh, within the prison system. A lot of high-level politicians got involved in this case and how this happened and all of the overcrowding in the prison. And really, it probably ended up resulting years and years later in the full decentralization of the prison, which is now several small prison facilities instead of one large one, because they're obviously easier to manage. And did you ever hear, uh, did, did the news ever report how the family felt about those changes? We did not. Um, the story sort of ended in our archives, so to speak, with the lawsuit from the Moreau's uh, daughter that just that went dragged on and dragged on and eventually went nowhere. Um, I don't believe that any of them still live in the Jackson area. I could be wrong, but um, we've not had any contact with anyone from that family since then. So this segues nicely into my question about the family. What it's, you said she was a church organist and that they lived kind of out in the country. What else do we know about the family and and um, what? You said that they had a daughter. Did, did they have any other other kids? And um, what's what's happened with them since? I believe that they also had a son. He was in the U.S. Navy at that time and was not home. Um, the daughter was 20 years old, still living at home, uh, just working, um, and found her parents that day when she came home from work and walked in the house. Uh, there was a hole in the wall, and there were some papers scattered around on the floor, and she was um, calling out to her parents with no success and started walking through the house and walked in on a pretty gruesome and grisly scene, as it's been described. And so what, what's the legacy of this story in Jackson County? I mean, is this something that people still talk about? Um, you know, how is this remembered? I mean, it's a very well-known story. This was tragic in, you know, like... Um, we reported people lived in proximity to these prison farms with no care or thought about seeing prisoners at work on the farms. Uh, the walkaways were very common at that time. Um, we had signs all around the perimeter of the city of Jackson warning people not to pick up hitchhikers. Uh, you know, prison area, do not pick up hitchhikers. That was That was sort of how they handled it back then. Um, this, this changed all that. People were very guarded in their homes. They did have loaded weapons, uh, in close proximity in the event that someone broke into the the home, but that never had really happened until Carrie Harden Bay 
broke into the Moreau's home, and he was truly a hardened criminal that did not belong in a minimum security facility, which is what the prison farms were. They were for trustees, what the what the prison termed trustees, very low, low risk, low crime um, prisoners. Thank you for sharing your story with us today, Leanne. This is uh, John Counts with Michigan Crime Stories. And I'm Darcy Moran. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned to Michigan Crime Stories for more episodes of mystery, murder, and mayhem in the Mitten State.